Welcome to the HR Uprising podcast. This podcast series explores HR hot topics and challenges through conversations with relevant experts and real-life HR learning and OD professionals. The HR Uprising is about learning through collaboration and evidence-based action. We want colleagues to have the confidence and skills to rise up through their organizations by delivering real, lasting business value. Now, introducing your host, chartered psychologist, experienced change agent, entrepreneur, speaker, and coach, Lucinda Carney. Hello, and welcome to this week's HR Uprising podcast. I'm your host, Lucinda Carney. I'm really fortunate to have Belgic Core here today, and I'll introduce her in a moment. Uh, just to position this, this for um, those of you listening, at the moment, we're actually recording this episode uh, during the midst, really. I think we're in week two, pretty much, of lockdown, aren't we, Belgic? So we're working out how how things are going and also the impact on this. Uh, we were going to look more broadly at diversity and inclusion, but actually I'll just agreed very kindly to um, give some commentary on the, maybe the impact of COVID-19 on this very important topic. So Belgit's a steering group member of ACAS East Midlands. She's also a steering group member of Engage for Success. She was a finalist in 2018 as Outstanding Businesswoman of the Year, and she runs her own training and diversity consultancy. Um, in fact, Budget, would you like to, I'm sure you'll be able to introduce yourself better than I can. Please just tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Lucinda. It's a pleasure to uh, talk to yourselves about uh, this really important topic. Um, so, yes, I'm Belgic Core. Uh, my consultancy is Innate Consultancy. Very much stems from uh, the ethos that we all have an innate need to feel valued and respected and included within our workplaces. Um, so really, it's sort of my approach is twofold. Uh, I work with organisations in terms of supporting individuals within organisations um, around bringing their best version to, to work. So how can they be the best version of themselves? What are those sort of uh, interpersonal skills that in all sort of collaborative and cohesive cultures? And then the second approach is working with organisations to see how they can uh, achieve that. Much more. Generally, organisations can to me things like we've got you know a bit of a toxic culture in terms of inappropriate language and behavior maybe disengagement that's emerged from sort of any staff surveys don't have the confidence and competence to manage diverse teams those sorts of issues that uh, people would generically bring to uh, myself and then we'll work with them to look to unpick what the um, uh, if you like the root causes of these issues are and then look to support the organization accordingly that could be through training that could be through community advice or it could be through some cultural audits or policy procedure audits whatever that might then look like okay so there's uh, there's quite a lot that you get involved in there i guess um i'm conscious that the sound at my end is cutting out a little bit of course it's because the whole world is using m media at the moment so i'm hoping that we might be able to just improve that a bit um you, you you have a huge remit there, Belgian, in the normal circumstances. But let's look at the circumstances that are going to have a knock on. Well, both, I suppose, in terms of the impact of people working remotely, um, not working, uh, you know, in terms of the the impact of COVID-19, but also maybe for the longer run. What's, what do you see as being, I guess, the changes or impacts potentially positive and negative of this? Mm. And uh, there are lots of consequences that the um, current situation does um, bring to the fore, all of which relate to businesses of all sizes. It doesn't matter whether you're small, medium or large, corporate organisation, professional, non-professional, whatever your status is, 
Uh, we're all in this game for uh, developing inclusive cultures where our people feel that they are valued, respected and do belong. So people do go the extra mile for organisations. So absolutely right to focus on this subject matter. And the, really this current crisis, this pandemic that we're going through does raise a number of issues for me. Uh, one is around um, some of the values um, that uh, this pandemic has really so incredibly brought to the fore. So people are helping each other out. People are offering assistance to people that they've never even spoken to before. There's a particular focus on older people and supporting the vulnerable, all of which is absolutely heartwarming and fantastic to see. I suppose my question to organisations and to leaders and change managers within organisations is how do we ensure that these more tender qualities around empathy and showing kindness and expressing vulnerability, how do we ensure that these uh, continue within our workplaces uh, long after this pandemic is over? So it's sort of those, if you like, those right brain skills and right brain traits that aren't necessarily always valued in the same, um, at the same level as some of, you know, the left brain skills around being task focused and, you know, being able to produce results and all of those kinds. Of I mean, I think that's something that's very much impacted on the um, and managers as well. I see, see that in terms of just management style, whereas in the workplace, uh, it has been appropriate to be just sort of really quite task. Suddenly, when you're managing your team virtually, you need to start with the human aspect of it. So it's not even for um you know people who are maybe vulnerable or more needy actually it's generally your 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 term tender qualities you know how can we have that people focus first um more normally and maintain mm. some of that because you could argue that actually those things mm. really should have been there all along absolutely absolutely so all of these sort of if you like the right brain uh, skills and traits are even more valuable than the left brain as you say Lucinda. So when we talk about, you know, managing conflict, you know, our workplaces throw people together that ordinarily wouldn't hang out with each other. That can cause tension, that can cause conflict. It's these more tender skills and qualities that we talk about in terms of those interpersonal skills, empathy, kindness, vulnerability, that help to mitigate some of that conflict, help to build empathy, help to improve upon those relationships, all the things you need in terms of that bedrock in order to produce any results and be productive as an organisation. But I just sort of always, when, I, when I'm working with organisations and when I'm generally um, um, looking into this space, um, there's not as much focus on those more interpersonal and more valuable skills. Um, so this really, this current uh, situation just brings that to mind. We're showing a lot of this at this moment in time, this empathy, kindness, vulnerability, people actually expressing emotion, talking about how they feel. How often do we do that? How in touch are we with our feelings? Because work is always around, you know, we give value to people. <coughs> excuse me, I've got a frog in my throat. Um, we give that value to people that come across as tough and independent uh, and assertive. Um, so it's those kinds of qualities. But it's okay to be vulnerable in a workplace. It's okay to be in touch with your so, emotions. So, I mean, I, I agree with that as a principle. How would you tie that, though, specifically to diversity and inclusion? I, um is that because you see that that to be a trait that is required to to be open minded and make the most out of people? What what's the relationship yeah. for you? Um, well, when we think about diversity, traditionally we've been talking about some of those um, equality groups or what we now reg- call protected characteristics. So you know, age, gender, um, identity, all of those kinds of sexual orientation, whatever that equality group or protected characteristic might look like. And absolutely, we do need to focus on those areas. But we've started uh, in this diversity and inclusion space, and you'll be familiar with this, Lazinda. we've started to talk about cognitive diversity. 
So when we talk about cognitive diversity, that is very much these kinds of skills. It is all of those left brain skills and it is all of these right brain skills. So, you know, how um, how do we play emphasis when we talk about cognitive diversity? First of all, do we as organisations understand what do we mean? Because when we talk about cognitive diversity, it is very much around how people think, how people feel, how people behave, the communication styles that people have. So all of this, uh, all of this area um, is very much what people t- should be referring to when they talk about cognitive diversity. And that's not to say we take the focus away from that demographic diversity. We absolutely need to have that. Um, But when we talk about cognitive diversity, how do we embrace all of these tender qualities? Um, Because, as I say, those are qualities that are so valuable in terms of building those relationships and those collaborative cultures, which we're all after. Okay, so... um... And I, and I completely take your point about cognitive diversity in terms of, I mean, for me, it is about valuing differences, whatever they are, and, and actually getting the best out of them. They can bring so much to um, any team or, or role, whatever they are, whether they're protected characteristics or just the way we think or do things differently. Um, definitely brings stre- strength and breadth. Um, if we go down to, say, the impact of uh, the pandemic that we're going through at the moment, do you see any changes other than sort of um, people being more tender? Do you see any potential risks to diversity and inclusion as a result of this that we should be aware of when things go back to normal? Um, I, I see more opportunities than I do risks, I'll be honest. Um, so, you know, some of the, um, if you like, um, risks. OK, let's focus on risks. The risks um, would be, for example, people working from home. That um, that's not their preferred working uh, style. They need to be around people. So, for example, they might be more extroverted in in their personality style. Uh, in which case, they need to have that face to face interaction with people and more FaceTime. And really working from home in this kind of environment, you know, they're not getting that opportunity and maybe not working to their to their best. Um, there's also issues around isolation and you know the mental health and anxiety and. Uh, uh, certainly on LinkedIn, there's been lots of support. And I know that you've actually looked to uh, provide support in this area in terms of information um, and support to organisations and to individuals around this. So absolutely, there are those kinds of risks. Um, but um, it just gives organisations an opportunity to understand um, what they might need to do differently going forward, which admittedly, in my mind, organisations possibly should have been thinking in advance. So at the moment, organisations are making all sorts of, say, adaptations for people with disability. Well, that should um, really have been the case at the outset. And some people I know from my conversations with people are finding it quite frustrating that these accommodations have not been made before. And we're only making these and allowing people the opportunity to have that work-life balance and work from home uh, and avoid the travel and avoid the anxiety and look at their caring responsibilities alongside their work responsibilities. At this moment in time, the crisis has brought organisations to think about this more acutely, um, whereas organisations should be thinking about what we've been referring to as agile working, um, you know, a long while ago. So the question for organisations is how business ready um, have they been and what contingencies did they build around this? Because uh, this should have been good practice. But this does give um, uh, organisations and employees an opportunity to think about the way forward. Um you know, learning people with learning disabilities, not everybody, but there will be a, a good number um, who would so welcome this opportunity and don't necessarily rely on that face-to-face as much. 
Um, it, I've talked about introverts um, and maybe people like um, I say people who have those caring responsibilities. Um, this really does alleviate a lot of the stress that goes with that. And just one other point on that, Lucinda, I wanted to make, which I think is a key point, which this does bring bring to the fore again, is um, the whole issue around fathers working from home. I mean, how often have we in organisations talked about fathers, the stigma around fathers taking time off, or um, the lack of um, uptake around shared parental leave? Uh, when fathers do take time, there's lots of research to say that they're mocked in the workplace. It's not considered to be a trait that um, is, is valuable. Um, so this really gives organisations the opportunity to think about fathers working from home and their experience. This may not work for every father. You know, some fathers may actually be at the end of their tether thinking, I'd so rather be back at work in, in the workplace. But for many fathers, it gives them the opportunity to actually, you know, spend that quality time with um, their families. There's lots of research which talks about, you know, we're facing a crisis of fatherlessness in this country. One in four families with children are now single families. 30% of UK fathers work 48 hours a week or more, which actually means that they're unlikely to see their children during the week. You know, this is this is in itself a crisis situation. So this, this uh, current time allows us to think about what the experience of fathers is looking at that quality time that they have with their families, that work-life balance, and how we can maybe structure things differently going forward to enable people that opportunity uh, to spend time with their families. Yeah, so I take that point in terms of almost encouraging men to go and take their time and and, to, and fathers to um, take up the opportunities. In terms of um, gender equality, do you see, I mean, I'm seeing some stuff which I can see to a, to an extent in my own experience, but with others, that uh, with the with everybody at home, there is a risk that in some circumstances that the women are t- still taking on, trying to work full time and trying to do all of the child's homeschooling mm-hmm. and trying to do all of the meals. There's almost old gender norms that maybe need addressing. I, mm-hmm. What's your view on that? Well, this gives us a perfect opportunity to test um, how uh, where you have got two people in a family. So, you know, you've got uh, two parents, um, you know, how they can look to um, address some of those issues. Um, Historically, uh, you know, it's considered that, yes, women um, have been the main um, bearers of the burden of childcare, if you like. Um, This gives people an opportunity to see how we can restructure things so that both parents can play an equal part. I mean, the third of British working mums are now the main breadwinner in families, and that's very likely to increase, which means that many men um, and even highly paid professional men could easily afford the time to take take the time off and help care for children. Oh. This gives us the perfect opportunity to sit to trial, almost trial and test. Where do you think see the responsibility lies, though, to make that happen? Um, I think um, very much with, with organisations to start off with, in terms of it's all around the culture. It's obviously societal as a whole in terms of, you know, how we actually view the role of women and how we view the role of men um, in society generally. But, you know, organisations certainly have a responsibility to think about what they can do to affect change and influence this wider agenda. And if we build those inclusive workplaces when people can actually talk about these issues, maybe talk about some of the vulnerabilities. So going back again to that tender quality around vulnerability, 
you know, I'm actually struggling with my workload. I can't manage my work and my home responsibilities. I'd like to spend more time with my children. Um, how can I achieve that? You know, giving people the opportunity to actually express um, some of these issues without that stigma. Because yeah. men don't go there in the main, you know, because there's this whole stigma attached to, you know, we don't talk about these issues in the workplace. And if you do, it's considered to be a sign of weakness. I suppose then things that we can do as people managers or HR professionals, if we're involved in virtual team working or Zoom meetings or whatever it is, be equally empathic for the men and the women and ask, you know, how's the childcare going? Encourage them to bring the kids on, you know, make it as acceptable for a child or animal to pop up in the background of the uh, video conferencing as it does as, as it might do anywhere else or make it not a stigma almost encourage it equally for both genders make it normal absolutely and i've seen on linkedin some of those videos where children have actually interrupted you know fathers working and children are interrupting um but you know that's that's the life for a, a working mum on a day-to-day basis so it's nice to actually look to sort of dismantle some of those uh, stereotypes and also start to focus on you know, men uh, in this environment and, um, you know, their relationship with their children. I mean, another really interesting statistic I came across was around, um, you know, where um, men are working um, majority hours and the woman is taking care of the children and doing all the household chores and all the rest of it. Um, There's a chance that 40%, um, 40% of these relationships will break up regardless of other factors such as living arrangements or wealth, etc. And it's simply because the burden of childcare, um, when I talk about burden, I suppose I should really say responsibility of childcare, does rest with one parent over the other, and it's just not sustainable in the long term. There is always going to be a loser, and most often it's the woman. So how do we actually look to affect change in our workplaces where people are comfortable talking about these issues, where organisations look at their policies and their systems and their structures and their mindsets, you know, remove some of this stigma and actually enable more, more of that agile and flexible working, which would suit everybody. Absolutely. And and help people be productive remotely. Everybody can do better out of that. And, you know, the upside of not having to commute on a regular basis, whether for health, financial, you know, or mm. pure time, you've got more time with your family or more time to exercise or mm. do things for yourself. It's, you know, definitely um, something where this sort of maybe presenteeism that we had in place maybe will be challenged going yes. forwards. Moving on to um, another group, I suppose there's been, as a result of this pandemic, it's been almost a, a, you know, a broad brush gone. If you're over 70, you should stay in. Yet we have 70 year olds in mm. the workplace and also in the NHS, retired doctors um, and nurses have been asked to come back, which is, I suppose, in some ways, a mixed message. Uh, what, what do you view? Do you view there's anything there in terms of ageism or otherwise that might come out of this? Um, it's a really interesting point there um, you make. Um, I... Uh, Absolutely. I think it's heartwarming to see how people have, you know, responded to each other and uh, all the offers of assistance uh, that people are providing to each other. And it's great to see that intergenerational mix where younger people are supporting, say, the more older generation or the more vulnerable in the community. Absolutely great that that's happening. But in my mind, there's a little bit of a danger in that um, is this sort of reinforcing some of the um, stereotypes and perceptions and assumptions that we hold of older people within the workplace? So generally speaking, and I do say generally speaking, um, you know, older um, people do face uh, discrimination and prejudices, which are considered to be more acceptable uh, than, say, any discrimination around gender or ethnicity. 
so ageism for me still seems to be more of an acceptable discri discrimination in workplaces and more of an okay prejudice. It's okay to make general assumptions of older people or have casual um, uh, language, which is sort of, um, you know, ageist in its tone. What would be an example? Um, what would be an example of that, Belgit? I'm not aware of let that. Let me give you an example. Say birthday cards. We give each other birthday cards. When somebody turns 60 in the workplace, uh, a colleague um, in terms of, you know, banter might give that person a card which talks, uh, which has some kind of a reference to um, them being old. Um, which uh, if you look in the card shops, you know, a lot of these humorous cards around older people um, meant to be funny, but aren't necessarily funny. That's what we call in workplaces are those micro inequities and those microaggressions. So something that's considered to be a joke, which is taking, um, making fun of somebody becoming 60, 65, whatever that might look like, um, isn't necessarily so. And that person opening the card, reading such a message, uh, a jovial message around them becoming old, and you know any sort of suggest suggestions around uh, any negative suggestions that uh, that invokes, isn't necessarily a positive experience for that individual. They may laugh it off. Because they understand it's come, it's meant to be banter, but in turn, they they have internalised it. They have actually, it's what we call the microaggression. It's those subtle slights and certain uh, disparaging comments and remarks that we provide to people. Another one might be, for example, we think we're paying somebody a compliment when we say, "You look really good for your age." You know, somebody might say, "Oh, I've, I've just turned sixty-five. Oh, you look really good for your age." What is that suggesting? Might that put that individual's back up a little bit? Might they get a little bit defensive? What you consider to be a compliment on the receiving end is almost suggesting that you've got to look a certain way when you turn 65. It's not necessarily a positive message. It's interesting, though, because I think you do hear ageism come the other way. Though, I mean, people might say, oh, yeah, this youth of today, or oh, you young whippersnappers or millennials and things like that. Absolutely. So you would say that actually yeah. any reference like that is could be interpreted as a micro microaggression. Is that what you'd say? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we talk about the millennial um, uh, attitude, uh, young people being lazy, snowflake, yeah. snowflake generators. Absolutely. All of these are disparaging. Unpick these, they are all disparaging. We might make light of them, we might generalise, um, and it's the same here. And I think, yeah, it doesn't matter what age group you are, these exist. I suppose in the current situation, there is this big focus on older people and also this issue around older people being at greater risk. You know, so they might disproportionately be using our public services like health service, etc., and that just, again, reinforces that older people are a burden on society. Yeah, disproportionately using services. It's a negative um, uh, perception we have. I know certainly for younger generations, I have a 13-year-old. Uh, for her, turning 50 is, um, you know, is old. You know, and her, the prospect of growing old is not a positive prospect in her mind because she has some of these perceptions and assumptions attached to when you become old you know, you're a burden on society or you're considered to be vulnerable. You know, we kind of pigeonhole people. And it's really important because when we have this kind of language and we have these perceptions, um, they just get reinforced by situations such as these. All that's happening are those stereotypes and those assumptions and perceptions are just being reinforced. And whilst I'm not obviously saying people don't help each other, don't help the vulnerable and don't offer support, I'm just saying there's a danger that we are looking to reinforce some of those stereotypes and assumptions and perceptions that we want to dismantle in a workplace. Okay. 
So in terms of maybe more generally, because that actually also is something which is generally we're talking about in the workplace. If, if, we were, if we'd been having this conversation outside of um, a pandemic, uh, and actually hopefully we'll, this will still be listened to by people in the future, uh, what, what, would you, what would your main sort of take homes or key learning points be that you'd, your, your key messages to HR practitioners regarding um, you know, making sure that you've got the most inclusive workplace that you can? Mm. So, um, yeah, so um, again, just referring to the current situation, I think some of those qualities we talked about that are generally undervalued in workplaces, how do we um, have conversations around these? How do we ensure that we are uh, upskilling our people around some of these personality traits um, and then looking to strengthen them? These are not fixed traits. So, you know, we can develop and learn these over time, but we need to spend some time and focus on these within our workplaces. I know some organisations are doing some great work uh, in this area, but generally speaking, there's not enough focus. And really, that's where we are getting those inclusive cultures. It's by building those skills that we're building those empathy uh, levels within people and looking to manage some of the day-to-day um, you know, issues that might arise in workplaces. I read a statistic somewhere, which I thought was just, just flabbergasting, really. Um, UK businesses um, spend $330 billion on resolving workplace disputes, which is lo- which is resulting in the loss of 370 million working days per year. I just think that's incredible statistics. So it's an area that we do need to pay attention to. So how do we spend the time and focus there? The other issue for me is the issue around upskilling people. So when we talk about you know the issues around age, um, you know this this these are our biases. What we're talking about these are our biases. There are conscious biases, subconscious biases, or unconscious bias, whatever you wish to refer to it, but these are biases. And how do we look to, again, facilitate those discussions? Because for me, a learning and development isn't necessarily telling people the do's and don'ts. You know, don't say this and don't do this. We talked about you know, that giving a birthday card with a, 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 an ageist derogatory um, joke on it, perhaps, or making some of those unintended um, comments to each other. Um, you know, coming from a good place, but not necessarily landing in the right way. Um, Unless we actually do some work and actually get our people to self-reflect and have those discussions and provoke that thinking. So really that intrinsic motivation in people. Yeah, people understand not just the do's and don'ts, but the why, the understanding, the deeper understanding at that intrinsic level. That's when we're going to get that attitudinal change. We can do all the targets, setting targets, and having plans and policies in place, all of which have have their place in an organisation. Yeah, we need that infrastructure, but it is going to have limited impact without people understanding this agenda, shifting those attitudes and involving those hearts and, as well as those minds. So for me, there's a big piece of work around how do we upskill all our people in organisations, not just so that they have the awareness around these issues and understand at that intrinsic level why these issues matter, but also then they're able to, by through that upskilling, they're able to consciously look out for things that need to be improved. And maybe, you know, consciously be able to call each other out in that constructive, compassionate way that organisations need to provide feedback and challenge to each other. So lots of benefits around, you know, people talk about we want to become diverse and we want to be inclusive as an organisation. But without doing the upskilling and having those facilitated conversations at that deep, visceral level, we are not going to achieve the change that we want to. 
And what frustrates me is around this agenda, generally speaking, it's just often I hear people say, it's not going to be an overnight change, this is going to take time. Absolutely, it's not going to be overnight, but let's set some timeframes around this, because otherwise it's kind of, you know, just throwing the ball into the long range. Um, let's set some timeframes around this. What is it we want to achieve? Where is it we want to be in terms of our brand and reputation around diversity and inclusion? And then what do we need to do now in order to achieve that? So, I mean, I completely agree with the concept of you, um, you know, setting clear goals and objectives so you can actually see if you've achieved something with the diversity and inclusion efforts. Um, have you got any examples where someone you've worked with or you've seen people put in place a really specific initiative and um, have been able to meet some sort of goal or target and, or, and what a good goal or target would look like in this area? I mean, one of the things I'm just thinking with, I know the unconscious bias training that's been done. My understanding is actually the evidence of impact is really quite low at the moment in terms Mm. of that. And and I'd be interested to know your opinion on why that is. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the approach, the reason why that's the case, unconscious bias training um, uh, has the perception that it's not working is because training is simply that all you are doing is raising awareness. Yeah. Yeah. You are raising awareness in individuals' minds uh, around this issue. So they've got that heightened awareness. Um, in that training, uh, where some organ- some uh, training falls down, is there's not enough focus on skill development. So all they're doing is raising awareness, all the facilitators are doing is raising awareness, and there's not enough time built within those training sessions to actually do some skill rehearsal and skill development. So when people walk out that room, they've actually got that enhanced level of uh, competency. So um, it's a bit of a challenge, but, you know, absolutely can be done. But that's more effective. Training. And what would be an example? Sorry, I'll, I'll let you come back to that question. What would be an example of um, a skill development around that? Is it a different communication style? What, you know, I could, you know what, what would be something which would be a skill that people would develop as a result of an unconscious bias training? So increased awareness and increased skills. So, if, for example, um, uh, my style is very much I facilitate discussions around scenarios um, that may uh, occur, very likely will occur in organisations. So um, I present, you know, questions and scenarios to people and then I look for them to do some problem solving around it. So rather than me telling them the do's and don'ts, it's getting people to do that self-reflection, dig in deep. Yeah, and let's understand why this might be problematic, why this scenario might be problematic within workplaces. And then what is it we need to do differently uh, going forward in this scenario? And that's where some of the skill development starts to emerge, where people start to think about solutions, the, uh, the way that a situation should be dealt with. And then they'll come up with things like, um, um, so I might, for example, suggest, well, in this scenario, then how would you provide feedback and challenge? And then people will obviously respond to that the best they work, best way they know how. But feedback and challenge is a technique. Not everybody does feedback and challenge in the right way. And not everybody will do it consistently in the organisation. And with all of these things that we talk about in diversity and inclusion, feedback and challenge, this is just one example, you know, yeah. in the time that we've got, I'll provide one example. You know, in all that we do, feedback and challenge is really important, done in the wrong way, because we're all going to trip up. You know, I might say something, you know, um, inadvertently, which might offend somebody, yeah, because I don't, I don't, I haven't come across this, I, you know, I've, I've never, you know, understood this issue, whatever that issue might be. Um, in which case, we're all going to trip up, say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, not take into account each other's feelings, because I haven't, you know, lived in your shoes. Um, so given we're all going to trip up, how do we ensure that we give feedback and challenge to each other in the right way 
so that it lands in the most positive way possible. Done in the wrong way. So if you said something to me, for example, and I said to you, um, that's quite racist what you said. That's not a productive way of challenging uh, what you said. Um, I need to do feedback and challenge in a way which gets you to do that self-reflection, gets you to think about what it is that might be problematic with what you said. It might be something you weren't aware of. But through that thoughtful questioning that I'll be doing and that almost coaching I'll be doing in my feedback and challenge to you, I will get you to move from where you are to where I'd like you to be. Because unless I do that, get you to do that self-reflection, you won't understand what it is that you've done wrong. And me telling you, you know, that that was racist isn't really going to make a huge amount of difference. So how do we do that coaching? How do we build coaching into our feedback and challenge techniques? And this is a technique. And it's so fundamental in diversity and inclusion because diversity and inclusion will create tension. It will create conflict because we're all diverse. Different thinking styles, different communication styles, different perspectives, you know, different demographic backgrounds, my experience, your experience. But how do we ensure that when we don't get it right, we have a compassionate, caring culture and people actually know the skill around feedback and challenge? So through those scenarios, through those problems I present, I'll tease these out. I'll talk about feedback and challenge. You know, I'll talk about communication. I'll talk about how would you demonstrate empathy? How would you become aware of your own unconscious bias? If it's unconscious, how do you become aware of it? And that's really the confidence and competence people need to walk out with in order to make a difference. And the point I was going to make earlier, um, which is also key, is that's fine on the day you'll achieve that. But going forward, the organization then needs to embed this in the day-to-day practice. This needs to be weaved into the mechanics of the organization. And that's where your policies and your systems and your mindsets and the culture come into play. Because our conscious bias training can only take you so far. It then needs to be embedded within the workplace. So this whole piece around consultancy, there's a training and there's a consultancy piece with organizations in terms of how do you do that? So that this actually sticks. This isn't just a one-off and every three years you're visiting the same, revisiting the same training and you're not actually making the change within organisations therefore not making the difference. So that's useful. I think the the concept of feedback and challenge, I can see um, giving someone the confidence to challenge the person if they feel um, that it's being said about them. But I guess also you could do that on behalf of someone else. I've thinking about it, I've seen this in cultures where they've had issues with, say, bullying and harassment. Um, and, and that's mm. the thing. So it's, it's a, a tool that you could use to get peers to support others if they perceive those unhelpful, even if it's meant to be funny banter, but actually giving that feedback and challenges to yeah. how something has been taken. And I suppose then building up to that, because sorry, I did ask two questions in one last time, didn't I? So mm-hmm. how could you then, if we were going to measure this, so we're not just going to go around and tick the boxes once every three years, what would be an example of, mm-hmm. of a good strategic goal or, or objective for somebody who wants to raise the bar in terms of diversity and inclusion? Um, well, you um, could have, I mean, oh, first of all, overall, you need to understand what you want to achieve. Um, as as a business, as an organisation, um, on your um, on on the business front, so in terms of your wider organisational goals, whatever those KPIs are, and then looking at your people and policy and cultures to see what you need to do and change there in order to support you to deliver those wider KPIs. Uh, all of this needs to be linked. People need to see that. People need to see that sort of a thread, if you like. Uh, so this isn't just something that's an add-on or it sits over there. It's not part and parcel. So that when I talk about weaving it into the mechanics, this needs to be weaved in. People need to understand why all of this stuff is important because it will generate those cohesive, collaborative, 
uh, cultures which are going to be conducive to the organisation achieving whatever it is that they set out to achieve. So why is this important? Being very clear on that. Um, having some goals that are evidence-based, so not just plucked uh, thin air because you've seen some other organisation do it or you read it in you know, some press article, but what are the, what's the evidence within your organisation? You only have so much capacity. What is it that you want to focus on as an organisation? So really being clear on what those issues might be. You can only do so much. So let's pick, I don't know, two or three, depending on, you know, your scale of it as an organisation. But pick two or three and let's do them well. Um, set yourself some timeframes. Understand what the root causes are. So sometimes we just think, oh, people are leaving the organisation and it's this particular uh, equality group. Um, and we don't really understand the root cause that so we put into place, all sorts of initiatives. Um, but really the root cause was managers didn't have the confidence to manage diverse teams. Perhaps that was the key issue. So let's do some work around that, as opposed to thinking about all these other initiatives, which might all keep us busy and might all give us that good feel factor, um, but really aren't addressing the root cause. So really understand the root cause, uh, understand why, why it is you're doing what you're doing, and then convert that into some key objectives for the organisation. Um, key objectives for the organisation and attach some timeframes. So when you understand what it is that you want to focus on, attach some timeframes uh, to this and then work backwards. So for example, I know talent management is a huge issue for organisations in terms of attracting talent, diverse talent and then retaining talent. Um, so, you know, if, if, you, if your evidence is suggesting that you have a specific issue around talent management, it might well be, for example, let's just go with the stereotypical traditional example of women in senior leadership teams, which is still a current issue, um, then, um, you know, what is it you're looking to achieve? You know, what percentage of women do you want by when and for what purpose? You know, just having women for the sake of having women or because we actually believe that they do will add value in a certain way? Um, and then when you talk about women, is it just women of a certain uh, ethnic background or do you want diversity within diversity to really understand your issues? What is it you're looking to achieve? Um, and then uh, work backwards and start to think about what, how do you break that down into what would make the most meaningful impact for, for your organisation? And that could be a number of things. I mean, I think what's really interesting, I'm hoping we've got uh, time, Lucinda, but what's really interesting is that the whole schools issue in this, uh, in this current situation, we're talking about schools and children um, not being able to sit their end of year exams, and we're going by predicted grades. Now, within that, there's a whole set of biases. And what we're talking about here is talent management. You know, when we talk about talent in organisations, it's a similar thing here in schools. You know, how do we recognise talent within within sorry schools, within our educational institutions, and how do we ensure that we're treating people in the fairest way? Because predictive grades, there are a whole set of unconscious biases, conscious or unconscious biases, that, that may be inherent within that. You know, how do teachers actually assess uh, a child's uh, potential, what they're truly capable of? And we know teachers hold biases, just like each and every one of us. So are there predicted grades based on maybe behaviours of students as opposed to true ability? Are we working on the deficit model in that if you belong to a certain cultural background or certain, I don't know, ethnic background or a socioeconomic status? Yeah, have we already set some boundaries around your potential and ability, what we call the deficit model? All of these things apply in organisations. It's the same principles that we will use and the same set of biases that come into play within organisations. 
there are certain people who will be in our in-group, there will be certain people who will be on our, in our out-group, depending on whether we have an affinity with them or not. In which case, all of these issues around, do we operate from a deficit model in that we will pick up our low weaknesses as opposed to their strengths? Um, and we will uh, misrecognize talent. So that person could well be talented, but we're, we're misrecognizing their talent based on the biases that we hold. So this whole schools debate for me is really, really interesting because it's the same debate that we need to be having within our workplaces. How do we assess potential? How do we assess ability? And how do our unconscious biases come in the way? I think that's a strong place for us to start wrapping up, actually. And I won't go into the school thing because I'm personally affected by it. And I think it's a very interesting um insights in, in terms of, the, mm. of that area as to who achieves and doesn't achieve and etc um but I suppose mm. so summarizing I'm thinking if I was in a fresh in a, a role in a talent management role or an HR role and I want to look at diversity and inclusion and, and make sure that we have minimize our unconscious bias what I liked was the fact you said let's start mm. with almost the problem let's look at the evidence so if we knew that we were bringing in equal numbers of graduates male and female or of ethnic whatever the proportions were but those proportions were not mm. feeding through to our talent pools for example then we mm. could use that as evidence I'd say I could see that that is evidence that we have a bias in some way for whatever reason they don't either don't want to go for it or they're not being identified as talent and that's where you could maybe have mm. a look at the causes, the possible causes of that, however you might do that, whether interviews or et cetera. But your goal might be to, you know, redress the balance or the proportions of uh, people relative to the amount coming into the organisation, something like that. I might want to have equal proportions being on talent pools or on, on senior management roles. That would be the sort of thing you're talking mm. about, which would be a measure of your success. You could then look at a gap specifically um, there. Mm. Yeah. And then how you look to understand the experiences of those individuals, you know, the barriers, the opportunities, all of that uh, kind of thing. How do you go about then understanding what, those causes are. what the issues are before you, before you jump into Great. it? OK, so thank you so much, Margaret. There's been lots of food for thought there and we've, we've covered quite a lot of, of, of areas, I suppose. If you were to give, you know, to summarise mm-hmm. online your top three also top tips then for someone who wants to raise their game in terms of diversity and inclusion whether it's taking it through from COVID-19 or whether it's more general what would you say? Um, I would say um, look to take this opportunity to reset your focus around diversity and inclusion Um, whether you're further advanced on your journey or not, but just sort of reset, take the opportunity to reset your minds in terms of what it is you want to achieve. Um, We've taken years, decades to, um, with lots of initiatives, um, lots of fatigue that has resulted as a result of all of these initiatives, and we haven't necessarily made much progress in some areas than over others. So, for example, gender, we have still made, you know, quite a few strides. Um, but in other areas, in the other protected characteristics or equality groups, for example, age, like we've just spoken about age, we haven't made the strides that we should have. So being really clear in terms of what it is you want to achieve as an organisation, it shouldn't just be around gender. Um, you know, what, what about all the other characteristics? And how do you ensure that you know what you want to achieve as an organisation in all of those areas, as well as the cognitive diversity? And then very much look to upskill your people. You cannot um, make traction on this journey without keeping everybody on board and everybody understanding and continually doing that self-reflection. That's where you build traction in organisations, where everybody understands why this is important and what is it they need to do 
differently and be more conscious around. So something we can all get involved in. Absolutely. So Valjit Kaur, thank you so much for your time today. If people want to connect with you or get in touch with you to talk further about this topic, how can they reach you? Um, well, uh, I have the, the, my LinkedIn profile, um, which um, uh, certainly can provide details around uh, my LinkedIn profile and uh, my website, uh, which when both of those areas will have my direct contact uh, details for my email and my phone number. I'm happy to um, have a no obligation chat with anybody that might want to sort of uh, receive some assistance around sort of this resetting this focus. You know, what is it perhaps we need to do differently in terms of um, upskilling and building that confidence and competence in organisation? Absolutely. No, that sounds perfect in terms of uh, the connections and as ever for the audience out there we will put your details on the show notes so people can access the show notes either um, through your podcast or actually just go to hruprising.com where all of those show notes and links will be on there um, to follow up with you so that's all for this week's episode on diversity and inclusion thanks my thanks to Belgic Core and uh, thanks to everybody for tuning in listening in to the HR Uprising podcast please do share with your colleagues and friends if you find us of interest and do comment if there's more you want to see or if you want us to cover other topics of interest to you. Many thanks. So I really hope you found that podcast interesting. It was great to have an expert on diversity and inclusion because it isn't something that we've covered before on the HR Uprising. Um, one thing I wanted to raise, and this uh, there is some information on cognitive diversity in this book, is that in approximately a month, my first book called How to Be a Change Superhero will be launching. And it is now imminently going to be available on Amazon for pre-orders. So I wanted to make you aware of that. And we're going to be running a special pre-order Amazon price of 99p. So it's a complete bargain if you'd like to get hold of it. Uh, so just letting you know that if you would like to know more about the book or get a pre-order on Kindle of the How to Be a Change Superhero book that I've written, then just go to our HR, our normal website, which is hruprising.com. The other favour I was going to ask is if you don't want to necessarily buy it now and you would like to help us maybe get into the top 100 or top 10 um, on Amazon bestsellers, then I'm going to be operating a Facebook group where ideally people would choose to go on and um, if they're going to buy the, the book, they're going to buy it roughly at the same time on launch date, which is the 21st of May. So if you're up for joining that Facebook group, we can let you know when it's going live and uh, and I'll put details of that on there too. So very much appreciate any support that you feel able to give regarding that. Thanks so much, guys. And I'll look forward to speaking to you next week. Thank you for listening to the HR Uprising podcast. You can access more information, including resources or links mentioned in the show at our website, www.hruprising.com. Also, you might want to join our LinkedIn community or tweet to us at HR Uprising. We'd love to hear from you.